Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we are continuing our conversation with Clay Bryant, author of The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, published by the History Press. If you missed the first part of our interview, be sure to look it up wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks as always for listening. Let's dive back in. You raised the question of time, and it's an extremely important one. You know, we've been in a long series on this show of, of looking at cold cases, and some of them sit, as you know, unsolved for months, some for years, and some for decades. And, and in some cases, you know, we, we look back at that and we think, this is terrible. How could they? Can't believe they missed this. Can't believe they missed that. And in other cases, there's there's a small, and that, that's a fair reaction, I think, in in a lot of instances where you know that evidence was overlooked, or or witnesses weren't talked to, or or witness testimony was discounted that should have been paid more attention to, which is absolutely a huge threat in your book. But there's an there's another aspect of it which is really interesting, which is that in some instances, time has to pass before you can actually make progress on a case and though it is enormously painful for you know the survivors for the victims families and so forth to feel like no progress is is being made there are kind of invisible wheels turning that will enable a case to come to fruition just at the right time so could you speak to what the passage of time actually did for this case as opposed to against the case? As a general rule, when it comes to evidentiary issues and things like that, and you know, witness testimony and statements, time is not your friend. But in some cases it is. In this case, not as much as a lot. Uh, maybe it's just, you know, their own uh, coming to grips with their own mortality and what they're willing to live with and not. But uh, sometimes, uh, Things will come forth that just couldn't come forth before, either through people's fear or their fear of being involved or, you know, and they just get to the point where they need to talk about it. And I've had that happen in cases, uh, not as much in this case, but in some other cases I had. Uh, the passage of time in this case was, in my opinion, just the investigation wasn't what it should have been. Uh, but in, in, in some subsequent cases, in, in, in a case that, uh, that I will write another book about, uh, it was a fear factor. Of people were just terrified of the guy that committed the murder. And uh, they just wouldn't talk about it. But 20 years later, they did. And uh, it led us to be able to solve that one, too. Yeah. Well, so that raises the question then, um, when you first came on to the case, you'd talked to Tim, you'd gotten the case file, you began to review the evidence and, and, you know, everything that had been collected over 20 years and so forth. Uh, What was the first thing that you did or what were your first kind of set of steps in 2003 when you first came on to this one? And and I have to say, you know, we're not going to spoil everything for our listeners because it reading your account is thrilling and i mean i read it in a single sitting clay i was so engrossed in the story of how you were able to pull all these things together and who you spoke to and how you how you actually cracked it 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 really was 
just an electric read, but uh, would you just tell us maybe kind of what your first initial steps were when, once you came back onto it? The first thing I did when Tim told me about the case is exactly as I stated earlier. I sat down with him and his sister, and they told me about their father, and they told me the things that made them absolutely sure that Daddy just had not walked away from the life that he had. You know, there were some problems in his life, but there was also some things he loved very much. They compiled a, uh, Tracy's daughter, she compiled a very nice list of the financial history of he and Connie's involvement, and I started following that and other things and uh, relationships she had with other people, other problems where other people uh, found her in their financial business and things like that. And it just kind of snowballed and rolled along. And there was always some conjecture that maybe, you know, he was there on the place. And uh, I couldn't find anything that uh, reason that it, that he probably wasn't. And then I ran into a, some information that a young lady came forth. It was during a time that uh, Connie had filed a probate action to have him declared dead so she could collect a life insurance policy. And she could do that because she was uh, an interested party in the estate uh, because of that life insurance policy that she, she, she held. And uh, this is, you know, 17, seven years into the thing. Uh, young lady says, oh, my God, I picked her up at the airport where the car was found at that time, the day after Thanksgiving. And Tim's and she called Tim's and Tim's attorney and told them about it. And he contacted law enforcement at the time. And I'd have no idea why they didn't, but they didn't follow that. And uh, had they, I think there would have been a resolution of this at that time, some 10 years before that I got involved in the case. And uh, it was that and some other things that led us on down the road. And we were able to make an arrest and recover the man's body. And we'll let our listeners dive dive into that in detail for themselves, you know, when they when they grab a copy. I will say this, it it struck me uh, that you you basically obeyed the the rule that I believe it was Woodward and Bernstein got from the FBI informant, which was follow the money. You know, when they were going after Nixon, follow the money, right? And w- when you do that, that starts to tell a story and it starts to paint a picture and there you go. Well, you know, people kill folks for different reasons. They commit crimes for different reasons. In short, there has to be a motive. And it could be self-preservation. It could be money. It could be lust. It can be a lot of things. In Fred's case, he fell victim to a couple of those things. I guess you'd just say part of the human animal. It was a waste of a, a very decent guy, other than that one shortcoming. And then his family suffered for 17 years, wondering and trying to find answers. And she sat there that entire time and watched them go through all this and gleefully sat there and 
you know, reap the benefits of that man's work, and it's just unconscionable. It was truly an, an exhibition of evil. And that, that's why I say that it was such a such a gripping read is because it's it, as much as it is, you know, police procedural, so to speak. It's also a character study of uh, of very deep. Uh, deep proportions. Now let's pull the camera lens back just a little bit. And I want to ask you just kind of one, one question about the, you know, the kind of the research and the writing of the book. Clay, this is a very Southern book. <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we got, we got two good old boys sitting here chewing the fat right now. So I just had to pull that, you know, pull on that thread for a minute. And, and it struck me as I was reading your book <laughs> <laughs> that you know you've already spoken about the web of relationships that uh, defines life in you know that particular town and what it meant for your daddy to have his relationships that he drew on as he did he did his police work I gotta tell you you know I I, I, I thought it was pretty special when there's a there's a, a spot about two-thirds of the way through your book where I mean, you're basically pulling up to the gas station in your pickup truck, and somebody over there, you see one of your old buddies, and you say, hey, I ain't seen you in a minute. And, oh, what do you know about this case? And y'all get to talking, and lo and behold, there's a lead on the case. And it just happens that this is one of your buddies that you've known for you know 20-odd years. And it just kind of struck me as like, I know that happens all over the country. I mean, I know that kind of thing can happen anywhere, but it felt just so in keeping with how life in small Southern towns can be. You know? I mean, that, that web of relationships is so intact and, and can be used, you know? And, and part of one of the reasons I've been successful is because of my relationship in law enforcement ever since I was basically a kid. I know so much history about all these old cases and, the people that were involved and, you know, it actually had a starting point, you know, just from personal knowledge. And, uh, I was able to build on that. And it, I, at the end, I think I'll, I'll probably have written, I, I hope to have written four different books. That was going to be a series called the Southern detective series, you know? And, uh, like I said, you know, people say, uh, first thing I say, you know, you should never get involved in, uh, personally in cases that you're investigating. I terribly disagree with that. I think a terrible wrong has been issued to these folks. And somebody needs to go to bat for them and do it with an open mind and open eyes. You know, uh, the, the biggest failing of most people that I see doing an investigation, you know, that's, Folks in law enforcement, that's investigators, detectives. We're the most the smartest guys in the world, you know. And we can pretty well walk into a room and figure out exactly what happened, who done it. And uh, we fall into that trap. And we quickly come to a theory or an observation that we want to follow. And we start looking for evidence to support our theory instead of looking for evidence that takes you to the truth. And uh, those, this case in particular was one of those. Uh, lead investigator in the case came up with a theory, and it just never, it never took wings and walked. You know. 
and you wrote very eloquently about that principle, you know, and reflecting on your, um, you know, your father's influence on you in the early chapters of the book. And I think that it's just one of those things that we do have to remind ourselves of from time to time. And, and you say that it even saved you from making some you know, mistakes over the years when you thought you're headed in one direction, but you're not paying attention to the evidence. And then you remembered what he said, which is don't look for stuff to confirm your theory. Look at the stuff itself. You know, I That's thought right. that was very, very wise and, and compelling. He was, a, he was a good investigator and he was a people person. And he said, you know, everything in investigations, it's about relationships, you know, uh, for years and years and years, there wasn't any such thing as DNA. And there wasn't a lot of uh, laboratory miracles that we have today. And, and don't get me wrong, they're great things. But there's still a lot to investigation other than laboratory miracles. Every case that I had, and we have used like mitochondrial DNA to ensure that the victim that we found was the person that we were looking for. But uh, as far as laboratory miracles, somebody calling and then, you know, saying, hey, we've run this test and this is your guy. None of these, none of mine were that way. They were based on evidence and witness statements and the things that we had to do to build a case back when, you know, a jury didn't demand that there be a videotape of a murder. And we've gotten to the point nowadays where in a lot of cases, if, if it's not videotaped and DNA supports it and all those other things that uh, DA's office won't even consider chasing it down. I was lucky enough to work for a district attorney that looked at the cases. And if, uh, if you had your evidence, he thought it was uh, a just, you know, a just solution to the problem. He would allow you to go that way. And uh, we were very successful. Of every cold case we opened, I said we opened it, we got to the point where we prosecuted it. Uh, we didn't lose any. And uh, I'm very proud of that. You know, for the, I, as, as proud as I am of that record, the worst thing in the world that can happen. And it's, you know, I would, I would just die if I thought that I had imprisoned someone, taken away their freedom committing a crime that they did not commit. I think that is the largest failure of the justice system, and it, and it has happened. And, uh, you know, you got three levels of, of in the justice system. You got law enforcement, uh, the judiciary and corrections, and, you know, the prosecutor being part of the law enforcement at the end of the deal. So you got three bites at the apple. And, you know, if everything works well, nobody that shouldn't be convicted ever gets convicted. To me, that was the greatest fear. My dad instilled that in me. He said the, the single worst thing that ever happened is convicting an innocent man. And I always try to keep an open mind to see that that didn't happen. Well, I thought you wrote very well as, about your encounters with the, the judges, too. You know, your kind of encounters with them and the, the way that you had to present evidence and so forth. We'll let our listeners dive into that for themselves, but it, it's it's a helpful part of the process to be able to see that, you know, kind of right up front. And, um, you know, those passages were, uh, were just as compelling as anything involving, 
you know, exhuming remains or, you know, track, tracking folks down who didn't want to be found, you know, that sort of thing. T- do this for us, Clay. I mean, you mentioned your Southern Detective series. Uh, just, just tease us real quick with this next book that you are working on because it, it sounds like a doozy. And I know that after reading your first two, folks are going to be on the edge of their seat for this third one. Just from the brief description you gave me, I, I, I know I am. It, it is, you know, we stated earlier about the, <laughs> that the woman was the most evil thing I ever encountered until I encountered this guy. It's uh, the story is about a young girl. Uh, she just graduated high school. Uh, the backstory is fabulous. Her father was an interpreter in the Vietnam conflict. He would they lived just across the border from Vietnam into Laos, and uh, she and her, uh, he was captured. And when we capitulated, uh, when the South Vietnamese capitulated, and uh, we withdrew. They went around and up everybody that was, you know, that they thought were collaborated with the South and the, the U.S. forces. And they took this man and took him up in the North Vietnam, threw him in a pit in the ground to basically let him die. His wife uh, bribed the guard, got him out. Uh, they floated, got the family together, floated down the Mekong River on a raft they built and got into a refugee camp in Thailand. And after some five years, uh, State Department or the CIA found him and brought him to the United States, and he had applied for asylum in the First Baptist Church of Newnan, Georgia, adopted the family, you know, sponsored them, and uh, gave him a job and this and that. And the children, there were five of them, and they were uh, they had tremendous work ethics. All of them did very well scholastically, and they when they first got here, they couldn't speak a word of English, and. Uh, Right after she graduated high school, she disappeared. Her body was found two years later tied to a tree just outside of West Point, Georgia. And a friend of mine with GBI said he'd all sleep over that and wanted to know if I would look back into the case. And we reopened it and we were able to follow him, uh, make an arrest. And he turns out to be a serial rapist murderer. And, uh, the irony of it was they went halfway around the world to get away from the evil that was trying to kill them there, and they run into a man like that here. Unbelievable. Well, all the best of luck to you as you work on that one. and It's going to be the best one, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I might need to bring all my puppies and kittens and cups of hot cocoa along for the ride as I, uh, as I read it, but um, I believe you when you say it. <laughs> and the bad part of it, that book has – a tremendous number of failures that had the right things been done, many of those crimes never would have been committed because he'd have been where he all should have been in the first place. At every level, law enforcement failed, the judiciary failed, corrections failed, you know, it's never been on the ground. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point 
when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. She stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Well, writing is truth-telling, and, you know, for you to be able to say these things and get them on the record and get them in print, you know, I, I live in the hope, Clay, and I, I imagine many of us do, that, you know, by your, by your setting these things down, it establishes the opportunity for folks to learn from those mistakes so that they don't make them again. And if you didn't talk about what went wrong, we would never be able to refine our process and, and focus on getting it right. So, um, you know, we got to tell both, both sides of the story in that, in that respect, what they got wrong and, and, and how to make it right. So uh, I, I totally agree. And there's no, no greater. I love law enforcement and I love, you know, I love justice to be found. And uh, if you don't, retrospectively look back at the things that went wrong, you can't correct them. Just like you said. And uh, Lord knows I've made a few bungles myself. But uh, <laughs> I, try, I try to learn from my mistakes and my shortcomings and to see if we can do a better job next time. Well, you got a barnstormer of a book here, and I know folks are going to get a lot out of it. I'm uh, sure to appreciate your taking some time for us. Tell me, where where can folks get a hold of you or copies of uh, this particular volume if they want to chase it up? Where, where can they find Fred Wilkerson? Well, my local bookstore in LaGrange, Georgia, pretty good books. Has, uh, they've been a great supporter of mine, and I'd love for them to buy them from pretty good books in LaGrange. But they can also get it through Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And uh, it's on the Kindle platform, and it's it's pretty available. I think and some CVS stores have some of the books in as well. And can they get it from Arcadia Direct as well? Oh, and and directly from Arcadia, my the publisher, uh, the History uh, History Press, and which is a division of Arcadia. They've been very supportive of me, which I appreciate that so much, you know. Absolutely. Well, I have no doubt that um, folks are going to want to do just that because this one really is something else. And it is such a privilege for us to be able to to have you on, Clay. I mean, all the work that you did on this and, and the outcome is just, uh, it really is remarkable. It's a, it's a hell of a story and we're grateful for you uh, sharing it with us. Well, the privilege is mine. And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be with you this evening and I hope anybody that does read the book they they enjoy it realize that sometimes a passage of time like you said is it's painful but there's always hope that somewhere in the world in the end there's some justice I've been lucky enough to help find some could not agree more Clay thank you so much thank you so much thanks for listening our guest has been Clay Bryant author of The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we finish out our series on cold cases with author Tobin Book, who dug his way out of a snowbank in Michigan to appear on the show. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, 
Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Three AM, the comedy horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing four one one, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends trying to bust each other's balls, find the best stories, and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.